Matthew. We went through chapter 1 from the beginning through to chapter 11, 18. Um, for this year, we're going to be looking at 11, 19 through to 21, 18. And then in 2020, we'll be doing the rest of the book of Acts. So it's not taking up the entirety of each of those years, but we just wanted to start each year reminding ourselves of how God used everyday people for the building of his church um, to encourage us and inspire us to uh, be about that great commission of making disciples of all nations. So this is where we're up to this morning, um, but we're not here to listen to Steve. We're here because we want to hear uh, the word of God, and so we ask God now in prayer to help us and to work through us and to change us. Heavenly Father, we don't presume that we have any right to call upon you as Father other than the fact that Jesus has died the death that we deserved in our place to deal with the problem of our sin. Lord, we are thankful that we have your written word which not only teaches us about who you are and who we are, but also records the way in which you work through ordinary, everyday people by the power of your Spirit to bring people to newness of life, to see the gospel spread, to see churches grow. And Lord, as we look to your life-changing word this morning, may that same Spirit that worked so mightily through the early church be at work in us and be at work in our community, our nation and our world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now over years of ministry, I've seen some of the funniest or probably better said, pettiest things cause division in churches. And unfortunately, if you've been involved in churches a fair bit of your life, you've probably seen some of that. And the majority of them are not even things that have anything to do with the Bible, anything to do with God, anything to do with doctrine. Often you see churches go into major division over a change of carpet. Last time I read through the Bible, there wasn't specific instructions for what type of carpet, what colour, or the, the paintings on a wall, or what type of flowers should be used in a church and what, where should they be located? A communion table, someone put something on it that wasn't specifically Christian. They might have put the car keys on it. And one of the things I love about us not owning this building is nobody's actually attached to anything in it. If, if we came in one week and they changed the carpet, people go, ah, oh, new carpet. Sometimes we get attached to really insignificant things. I remember chatting to an Anglican minister down in Victoria whose church was full of things that had little plaques on it in loving memory of this person or donated graciously by this person. And once you've done that, you can't get that stuff out of the building because you, if you're throwing that out, it's like you've thrown that person out of the church. And he pulled me aside one day and he says, Steve, you don't happen to know anyone who owns a bulldozer do you so if you could knock this place flat you'd be doing me a favor it's funny how we get so attached to insignificant things but then again there are some of us who just don't like change in general you might turn up to church and someone else is sitting in the seat where you often sit 
Now, none of these seats belong to anyone, and if they do belong to you, please take them home when you, you're finished today. But some people think, oh, I've got to choose another seat. That's, that's a big issue. Or sometimes, what if we change the order of how we did things in our church service around? People are like, oh, I can't cope. They, they had the sermon at the beginning of the service. Now, I admit I've got some issues, and I was very strong, actually, just on the way to Christ. I took Miller to the toilet, and I didn't do this, but often if I go there and the toilet rolls with the paper dispensing the back, I'll, I'll switch that baby around. <laughs> but if you're someone who doesn't like change, the Christian life is probably going to be quite difficult in many ways because you cannot become a follower of Jesus Christ and expect everything's going to stay the same. Because it won't. When you come to trust in Jesus, who you are is completely flipped upside down, your identity, your worldview, your priorities. Everything's changed. I don't know if any of you watched the Franklin Graham thing last night. I didn't, but I certainly remember in the days of Billy Graham's, they would regularly sing that song, Just As I Am, as as people are coming forward to respond to the gospel message. But when we come to Jesus, we don't stay just as I am. We are changed. Everything around us changes. And today, as we continue through Acts, we look at three ways in which the gospel changes everything. The first one sounds a little controversial. The gospel sends people away. The gospel compels us to speak out. And the gospel changes our allegiances. And we'll unpack those as we work our way through the passage. But before we look at these, there's some necessary background that makes sense of why chapter 13 is a very important, pivotal moment in the book of Acts. Remember in the opening chapter... The risen Jesus gave a commission to his followers in verse 8 of the first chapter, saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And not only was that the command of Jesus to his followers, but as we work our way through the book of Acts, we see that's exactly the way the pattern of the book plays out. See, in chapters 1 to 7, they are bearing witness to the wonderful work of the gospel throughout Jerusalem. Particularly after the martyrdom of Stephen, we see the everyday Christian scatter and they go into the surrounding areas, taking and proclaiming the gospel with them. But in those intermediate chapters in between 8 and 12, you see Philip bringing the Ethiopian eunuch to faith. We see his strong evangelistic ministry he had in Samaria. But we also see two other really significant conversions during chapters 8 to 12. We see Saul, who's now, who becomes the Apostle Paul, that great prosecutor of the church, the man who sought to bring it to nothing and would spare no expense or personal suffering to do so. And you had the first Gentile, convert to the Christian faith in Cornelius. So as we go from chapter 13 right to the end of the book is that final part of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Because people realised they had a message, they had a good news that was not to be kept to ourselves, not to be kept to our location, but a message that needed to spread, that needed to be shared. 
And so in this year, we've got 18 messages as we go from chapter 11, 18, which we've done a couple of weeks already, uh, through to 21, 18, which will include all three of Paul's missionary journeys. But today, we see the beginnings of that transition. Of We've seen a lot of the focus of Peter in Jerusalem. We see a lot of emphasis on um, Philip and and Peter drew in chapters 8 to 12, but now it's primarily Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And we're going to look at three ways the gospel changes everything. Firstly, the gospel sends people away. That's not a very appealing title, is it? Wow, the gospel sends people away. I'm going to say a number of uninspiring things today, as I have done at a couple of events during this week. One of the hard things in church life is that you get to know people really close. It's like a like a, a family, you work together and you're ministering side by side, you're encouraging one another, building one another up. But in every church, people will move on. They will move away to another town or even another country. Now in our setting, quite often people moving away, it's because changes in a work environment, changes in family circumstances... That probably wasn't a major factor back in the first century. But one thing we do have in common with them, which happens today and happened very much so back in the first century, is that when you come to understand the urgency of the gospel, the good news, which is for all men, every man, every woman, and you haven't, you know you are surrounded by people who have not heard, who have not come to trust in Jesus, It sends you out by nature. You cannot hold it, contain it, keep it to yourself. And that's happened from day one of the church and it will happen every day until Jesus returns. But as we begin Acts 13, the focus comes in on a church in Antioch of which there's not a great deal said about. In verse 1 it speaks about how there were prophets and teachers within that church a distinction made between a prophet and a teacher, that being someone who teaches the Bible isn't specifically a prophet, or the other way around, although there will certainly be some significant crossover of content between the two. And then it speaks about five men, important leaders who are part of that church. It doesn't say which were prophets, which were teachers, or which were both. But what we do know is they were a diverse bunch. They were a very unusual gathering of people. And first century Roman culture didn't tend to gather very different people together. The rich didn't do anything with the poor. Jews didn't do anything with Gentiles. But when we see just this from these five people in the church in Antioch, we see a very diverse group. You've got Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, who's referred back in Acts chapter 4. You've got Simeon called Niger, who is likely a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, that's Libya, the north coast of Africa. Manan, a friend of Herod, the same Herod that had John the Baptist's head chopped off and was involved in the trials of Jesus. And you've got Saul, a Roman citizen, the Pharisee who was formerly the greatest persecutor of the church. What an odd collection of people, particularly in a culture where unlike people did not mix together. And I love the way the gospel brings people 
together in a way that when you gather together, you think only God, only the gospel could bring these group of people together in one place. And there were five significant prophets and teachers amongst the group. And as Keith reminded us, that this church in Antioch is the very place where Barnabas went and found Saul. When he found them, for a year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I believe Keith called it Saul and Barney's Discipleship Training School. And we're seeing some of the fruits of that as we see the church in Antioch described now. But while the people are gathered fasting and worshipping, I just want to say a quick little note on fasting, just because it's there. The New Testament talks a number of times about fasting and different occasions when people fasted. But the Bible doesn't anywhere specifically command fasting. There are times where you can see it's being used and there are benefits for doing so, but it's never specifically commanded. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it does mean you shouldn't tell someone that they must do it. But it's also interesting to note that it never stands alone as a primary thing. Like you see, like prayer and fasting, worshipping and fasting, that fasting in and of itself is not the primary goal, rather that it's a means of withholding from certain things in order to invest deeper and more heavily in spiritual things, whether it be worship, prayer, seeking the God in some way. And as they were seeking God and worshipping and fasting, the Spirit had a message which he communicated to them. Now our curiosity, probably at this point in time, thinks, I wish the Bible gave more details. It just says the Holy Spirit said. Was it something audible? Was it something that was revealed to one of the prophets who spoke to the rest of them? Was it in the collective conscience of all of them that this is what, what God would have us do? Well, the passage doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to come to an answer on that one either. Because that's not the important thing about how the message came to, to be communicated. The important bit was the message itself. Set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to. He's not talking about a new work. He says, the work I have already called them to. Which drives us back to chapter 9, where we see there in the conversion of Saul, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Remember when we covered that back in Acts chapter 9? Thirteen years has passed between the time that God says, This is going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Thirteen years passed before, during that time of God's preparing, till it actually came to fruition. Maybe a word of encouragement for anyone who thought they had a particular calling in life and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But when you think about it, when you see this list of five people, Saul and Barnabas are possibly amongst some of the most valuable ministry people in the church at Antioch. And the Holy Spirit says, I want those two. And I want to send them out. Often we see this happen in churches, and churches really grieve that, what, do you want to take our best men and use them somewhere else? So how, how does the church respond to the Holy Spirit wanting to call out two of their best men? Do they say, no, not Saul and Barnabas. You can have Shane and Darren. 
There's popular names there in the early church, I'm sure. Now, as they're seeking God in prayer and fasting, they happily send out Saul and Barnabas. They say goodbye to two significant people in their congregation because they know this is the will of God and they happily send, with the church's blessing, these people to go and minister to others. And in our life as a church, we will see significant people sent out from our church. Whether it's to go to do missions internationally, or even if we were to plant a church at some time, we would see people going from one place to another. And we would hope that we would be encouraging as a church for them to use the gifts which God has given them and send them out with our blessing. The gospel changes everything, and because it changes everything, it will send people away. Secondly, the gospel compels us to speak out. Saul and Barnabas weren't just sent, they were sent by the Spirit to do the work that he called them to do. So many times we've reminded us that effective ministry is about us being faithful, but its effectiveness is dependent upon the work of God, the work of God's Spirit through his faithful servants. If it wasn't for the work of the Spirit, any ministry would achieve absolutely nothing. If in Acts chapter 2, if Peter gave his great sermon and they said, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. If it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, they'd say, you repent. You get in the bowl like an M&M. But we saw thousands come to salvation because of the work of the Holy Spirit amongst them. Saul and Barnabas have been sent with a mission. A mission which begins in Antioch and Seleucia and areas of Syria. Then goes to Salamis in Cyprus and Epaphos. Now there's not much said about what happened in these places. But it's pretty clear by the description what was the central and most important aspect. When they were sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John there to assist them. Even though Saul is being sent as the apostle to the Gentiles, it was often his habit he would begin in the synagogues with the Jews who already had an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures which pointed them to their fulfilment in Christ where he'd bring to them how Christ was the fulfilment of all the things they'd been hoping for. And even though there's little detail about what did happen, they proclaim the word of God. That's always going to be the central thing of any, any ministry, is proclaiming the word of God, what God has done in Jesus Christ to do with our sin. The way Paul later explains it in Romans chapter 10, how will people come to faith if they don't hear? And how will they hear if nobody is sent and preaches to them? Christians are by nature a proclaiming people. We are called to proclaim, to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. It's a truth we can't contain. It's not a truth to keep to ourselves. You might be familiar with the mission statement of Eastgate, to know the word, both the written word and the living word, Jesus, 
to live the word, again, written and living word, and to proclaim the word for the glory of the name. Proclaiming is part of our identity, who we are as followers of Jesus. And we all know that we're a church that are very well known to be a highly introverted group of people. I'm a highly introverted person. But the gospel changes all. And because the gospel changes all, we proclaim because we have a good news that needs to be shared. Lastly, the gospel changes our allegiances. Safe everything has really kind of been skimmed over. It's been moving really, really quickly. Just very little detail given. Now things slow down. Now we start to get details. And this is where the focus really comes into play. After what seemed to be a bit of a preaching tour around Cyprus, not just a, a direct line from east to west, finally they arrive down there in Paphos, which is the major, major city area. And the first character that we're introduced to is a bit of an odd kind of guy. They come upon a magician or a sorcerer or an astrologer, depending how you translate it, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. They're kind of words you don't put too closely together very often. A Jewish sorcerer. Because the teaching of the, of the Old Testament is that if you're a sorcerer, you should be put to death. So one can presume that the reference to him being Jewish is purely an ethnic and a cultural reference. But he's not only a sorcerer, but also specifically named to be a false prophet whose name, Bar-Jesus, the Bar part means son of. So his name pretty much either means son of Jesus, either claiming to the name of Jesus some extent of power and authority, or son of salvation, which is what the name Jesus means. Now we're introduced to him as he's there alongside the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He probably served the proconsul as his personal sorcerer and astrologer who the proconsul would consult. Now we don't have proconsuls today, but consider them similar to maybe like a premier, like one who leads over a province or a state. He's described as an intelligent man, and as an intelligent man, he requests the company of Saul and Barnabas because he wants to hear about the word of God. That's an interesting thing for us to hear today because many modern atheists will, will say to you, no intelligent person would seek to hear from the word of God. Yet because the proconsul is an intelligent man, he wants to hear the word of God. Now, poor old Bar-Jesus, he's not real keen on this, is he? If your job is to be the sorcerer, astrologer, whom the proconsul consults, and now your boss is wanting to hear about a message which basically says your role is finished, as well as the fact that most likely he's operating in a demonic realm to do these things, he's not going to be that favourable about his boss hearing the word of God. Which puts the proconsul in an interesting position, doesn't it? Does he listen to a guy whose advice he sought for probably many years or does he go with his gut thinking, I need to hear the word of God from these two people I've never really met before? Now, Saul, who sees the reaction of Bar-Jesus, is for the first time in verse 9 in the New Testament called Paul. 
Sometimes when you see a name change, there's a big significant moment and a description of why it happens. It just goes, Saul, all of a sudden it just says, Paul, and for the rest of Acts, he's referred to as Paul, never gets referred to Saul again. Paul is just the Roman equivalent of the name Saul. And as one who was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, it makes sense that you pick up on his Roman name as he begins on into that ministry. But as he was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about receiving the Holy Spirit, which you do when at the time he came to faith. The Bible talks about filling of the Spirit, like in a special enabling for a particular task. And here I think God wants us to focus that. What Paul's about to say here is not just a rant of Paul. This is work of the Holy Spirit within him. And he turns and he says to Bar-Jesus, you son of the devil. Here's an interesting first line to somebody. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That was pretty harsh words, weren't they? And he takes a very specific attack at the guy's name, whether he's taken on this name himself. This guy who calls himself either son of Jesus or son of salvation, Paul says, no, you're not. You're a son of the devil. You are opposed to the things of salvation. You are opposed to the things of Jesus. And I imagine as Paul is mentioning the idea that blindness was going to come upon him, Paul was probably thinking back to his own experience 13 years ago when that exact same thing happened to him. The Bible doesn't tell us why it was a temporary blinding. Maybe Paul was hoping that this guy would repent and come to faith. We don't know if he did or not. Now we all know reading through the Bible that Paul was filled by the Spirit. The Spirit worked through Paul to say these words. I often wonder about Barnabas. Did he know that? Or at some time it was Barnabas thinking... Settle down, Paul. Easy on tiger. You're going a bit hard on this fella. I know if I heard it, my first conclusion probably wouldn't be this man's full of the spirit. But the man was struck blind and begins searching for someone who can lead him. This guy who once had a high and mighty position with the proconsul to be his advisor into all sorts of things with this encounter of these two men who knew the true and living God, he is struck blind and needs other people to guide him. You think, is this going to affect Paul's ministry to this proconsul? He just insulted his staff member, struck him blind. This is the guy who'd want to hear about the gospel. You, you, you spoiled it, Paul. Well, I think the gospel's a bit bigger than that. Verse 12 says, Then, after all that stuff happened, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So despite what happened to his staff member being rebuked by someone he didn't know, being struck blind, the proconsul believed. And while you could mistakenly look at this verse, if you're doing a quick skim read, think, well, because this guy was struck blind, because of what the proconsul saw being so amazing and miraculous, he believed because of that. But the passage is very clear. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
It wasn't the miracle that changed his mind. The miracle did just the same as it did in the ministry of Jesus. It affirmed the authority of the one who was speaking. It affirmed the message that was being spoken. The word that he requested to hear was the word which brought him to faith. Probably only the day beforehand, the proconsul might not have even heard a thing about Jesus. When he had word that these Saul and Barnabas had come to town, he wanted to hear the word and he was compelled by it. In that very same day, he goes from being happily trusting in the advice and guidance of his sorcerer and astrologer to turning his back on that and finding the one who has power and authority above all rule, power and authority and coming to know Jesus. On that day, all of his allegiance has changed. As do ours the moment we come to trust in Jesus. Our identity changes, our motive changes, our passions, our desires change as a child of God whose sins are forgiven by Jesus. So what? The gospel changes everything. Nobody comes to faith in Jesus and expects everything to stay the same. In fact, I'd go so far to say, if you come to faith in Jesus and everything stays the same, you probably haven't come to faith in Jesus. We saw that the Spirit and the Gospel may call and send people away. Give them a mission, give them a passion, a heart to the Gospel that they have received to share it with those who do not know them. I'd love to see Eastgate become a regularly sending church as God placed a desire on the hearts of people, either nationally, locally or internationally, that we'd be rejoicing in training up people. And not sad that people when we're trained up don't use it here, but we get to use it somewhere else. Because guess what? None of you are our people. You're God's people. The gospel through the Spirit compels us to speak of the good news. Every single person in this world is an evangelist. The very things that people are passionate about, they will be the evangelist about whatever that is. They will tell you about the things that's most exciting to them. Whether it's a new child, whether it's their unhealthy interest in AFL and St Kilda, I don't know who that could be. People talk about what's important to them. How much more when we have the message which leads to eternal life? Even when we're introverted. Even when we might not be the most educated. The power of God is in the gospel. And through the work of the Spirit, God saves people through ordinary, everyday Christians. And the gospel changes our allegiances. Everyone's got a worldview, how they view the world in which we live in how they go about what the things that determine what they do on a day-to-day basis. And when you come to trust in Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that shatters your worldview. It changes it completely. You find that the puny things that we used to cling to are nothing. In fact, sometimes to continue to cling to them is both rebellious and futile. We have come to see the one who is power and authority above all things and we are a child of God, we belong to him. That sets our agenda. 
The gospel changes everything. And for some people, that's scary. If you naturally dislike change, a lot of aspects of the Christian life will seem really, really hard because it calls us constantly to be changing. Or if you're the sort of person who always likes to have things under your own control, the Christian life is going to be tough because you are not the ruler of your life. You are not the Lord. You are not the King. Or if you're like me, and it can be tempted in both of those directions, give up. I told you I was going to have some inspiring things to say here this morning. I did it earlier this week. I was the speaker at the CRI commissioning service. And in a great moment in that message, I said, you are nothing. The message I gave them was from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says, he who plants and waters is nothing but God who gives the grace. So I confirmed that they were nothing. Now, before you think Steve's lost the plot, what do I mean give up? I don't mean give up on God. I mean give up on trying to control your life. Give up on your resistance to change. Instead, call upon God. God, lead me into change. I don't like it. I naturally want to control things myself. Help me to follow you. Help me to trust you. Help me to be that child of God who, like a little child with their parent, just loves to listen to everything their parent says. This is of the early age where they still do. And depends upon them to guide them, to lead them, to lead them towards good things. And to pray, God, lead me into change. For my good, for your glory, and that the gospel might go to many. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that at varying degrees, all of us don't like change to some extent. Lord, we thank you that you are in the business of changing us because everything you desire to change us toward is for our good and for your glory. We thank you that you have the power to change us because so often we look at the demands of the Christian life and we think that's well beyond us. May that lead us not to hopelessness. May it lead us to cling so dearly to the one to whom we belong, who is able to do abundantly more than anything we ever ask or imagine. God, transform us. Use us. Build us up that we might be sent out to bring people to knowledge of Jesus Christ and to maturity in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.